Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Popinski. And today, Julia Kelly is back on the podcast to discuss The Lost English Girl, an epic saga of love, motherhood, and betrayal during World War II that tells the story of the evacuation of English children to the countryside. Julia Kelly is the internationally best-selling author of historical fiction and historical mystery novels about the extraordinary stories of the past. Her books have been translated into 13 languages. In addition to writing, she's been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and for one summer, a tea waitress. Julia called Los Angeles, Iowa, and New York City home before settling in London. Julia Kelly, thank you for coming back on A Bookish Home, and congratulations on your new book. Oh, thank you so much. And it's really a pleasure to be chatting with you again. Yes, I um, I always know I'm in for a treat when you have a new book coming out. And I just got lost, well, lost, no pun intended, in this new <laughs> book and just kept trying to squeeze in another chapter wherever I could. Um, just needed to know what was going to happen to these characters and just the whole world you brought to life. I just thought it was so fascinating. So for listeners who have not gotten to pick it up yet, can you tell us a little bit more about the lost interest, lost English girl and the characters we meet in this new novel? Of course. Um, so the book starts uh, with uh, our two main characters, Viv and Joshua, um, on their wedding day. Uh, Viv is a young Catholic girl living in a very tight-knit community in working-class Liverpool uh, in the 1930s. Joshua is a young Jewish man, and they have had a relationship that's resulted in Viv getting pregnant out of wedlock. Um, so they come together on their wedding day to get married to legitimize the child, but not everybody is happy about this. Um, Viv's parents in particular are not happy about her marrying a man who is outside of her faith. Um, And so it's a very tense time and uh, the wedding goes forward, but then on their wedding day, they're actually separated uh, through circumstances that happen and some decisions that each of them make. And uh, so Viv is essentially estranged from Joshua. Um, So when the book picks back up again, um, we have Viv living uh, with her daughter, Maggie, who's about four and a half years old at this time. Um, And Joshua is in New York uh, pursuing a career in music. He uh, has had a longstanding uh, love of jazz music and really believes that he has the talent to become um, a working musician in New York. And so that's what he's pursued. But then war breaks out and both of them are forced to make some really difficult decisions. In Joshua's case, he's forced to uh, decide what he as a British man is going to to do uh, living in America. And so he actually comes back to Britain and uh, joins up with the RAF. In Viv's case, uh, and really sort of the at the heart of the novel is the decision to keep her daughter with her in Liverpool, which the government correctly identified as a high-risk city for um, potential bombing by the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, or to send her in one of the evacuation waves um, at the beginning of the war, send her to the countryside where she ha- uh, Maggie would have a stronger chance of being safe. And as you can imagine, it's, it's an impossible decision and one that really... Um, 
plagues Viv and then has huge implications for what happens throughout the rest of the book. But it's not a decision that, um, you know, is made in isolation. You know, many, many parents were in, in real life, not in this fictional book, were faced with making this decision. And um, you mentioned the evacuation of children. Operation Pied Piper and private evacuations accounted for about 3.5 million evacuations throughout the war. Um Operation Pied Piper alone was the government scheme to move about 1.5 million children, uh, school-aged children, mothers and infants, and vulnerable people out of these high-risk cities to the countryside. And it's an area of history that's fascinated me for a really long time um, and one that I really wanted to explore in this book. Yeah, it was really heart-wrenching to read about. And, you know, I had heard about the evacuations, but I mean, this is one of the things I love about historical novels. It's very different to experience it with a character and walking in their shoes and being in their minds as they're trying to make these decisions. It just brings it so close to home. And I hadn't really thought before about just how the timing of of the war made you experience it so differently as a parent. So you might have children off fighting. You might have children that are old enough to be evacuated. You might have children that are too young to be evacuated. And and, I mean, coming off of the, you know, height of COVID, where I feel like, depending on your child's age, they were either missing, you know, really important moments, you know, in college, or, you know, people with really young kids struggled. It just I felt that parallel a lot. Of course, this was um, much more harrowing, but just how the time of a certain world event having such an impact, depending on how old your kids are, I thought was interesting. And and you mentioned just now that, because I I was curious about this, if your kids weren't old enough to be evacuated, did you say that mothers and infants were evacuated too, or, or were they just kept with their families in the city? So mothers and infants could be evacuated as part of the Operation Pied Piper scheme. But obviously, um, you know, I said that about 3.5 million people were evacuated, but Operation Pied Piper accounted for about 1.5 million. Uh, In the case of those other evacuations, a lot of those were arranged privately. So people who either had the means and the resources to send their children um, to live with friends and family um, in places that were deemed safer. In some cases, people sent their children to live um, to live abroad. And in some cases, there were private arrangements through organizations like churches and other, um, other institutions that uh, put children together who might have been, put children together with foster families, I should say, who might not have been old enough to have been in school um, and, and so would not have qualified for the Operation Pied Piper evacuations. And that's really the case with Maggie in this book. Um, her evacuation is facilitated by the um, by the family, the the family's um, parish priest, and so he's the one who makes those uh, evacuation arrangements. He's the one who says, you know, this is a good Catholic family that I can place your daughter with, and. Viv's mother is very disapproving of what her daughter has done. Um, there's a, a sense in the book that Viv's mother is never, uh, Viv has never been the favorite of her mother. She has a sister named Kate who has an easier relationship with with their mother. Um, but Viv, in in having this relationship with uh, a young Jewish man and getting pregnant, 
and bringing shame and focus in onto the family in their community, it's made her mother even more um, antagonistic towards her. And so her mother really forces Viv's hand in uh, basically demanding that Viv send send Maggie away and send Maggie away to again a, a good Catholic family um, who will take the take her her daughter in. So it's um it's a really difficult situation for Viv because she doesn't have as much power and as much agency as she might have if she was not estranged from her husband and was living um, with Joshua um, and living in her own household. Right. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting to sort of see the juxtaposition of Viv's relationship with her mother, who's really cruel to her at times, and they don't have this close relationship. And then the way you portray just this visceral love um, Viv has for Maggie and their relationship and um, just makes it all the more heart-wrenching when they have to be apart. And then the idea, too, of what makes a good family for a child and, you know, just the attitude of the foster parents she winds up with who feel that they have all the resources and money and the fancy house and can give her horseback riding lessons and whatever else she needs, but that they think that that somehow makes them more entitled to have her than, than her own mother. And, and then struggling, I guess, for Viv with watching her, grow up so so differently from the world she would have been in it's just oh there's so there's so much there and um I just couldn't stop thinking about these characters oh thank you very much well you know I'm I'm always interested in um where I can addressing class difference and one of the big class differences and also regional differences you know Liverpool is a very very much a city uh, it's a port city and it has you know still to this day has um, industrial elements to it and even more so back then um, you know sending sending Maggie from that environment uh, in in a working class community of Walton and Liverpool to the countryside in the East Midlands, um, where her foster parents are a you know well to do middle class uh, upper middle class couple who have a lovely home and beautiful things, and they're sort of a bit more of the country set. They live uh, a different life than. Um, a different life than than Viv ever would live, uh, partially because of class, but partially because of where she lives. And, you know, one of the things that is really difficult for Viv, because she does figure out a way to go and visit her daughter, um, which some parents were able to do and some weren't, um, depending again on on means and where their children were evacuated to. And in this book, I, I gave Viv the ability to do that. Um, you know, she she comes down on the train. She battles through the difficult public transportation that was going on at that time with lots of missed trains and slow trains and, you know, buses and all sorts of issues. And she comes to this sort of bucolic village life where everything is beautiful. And Maggie has a bedroom of her own and beautiful dolls and books and things to play with and endless, um, you know, endless privilege in a way. Um, and I, I, I think in one way that is, is most symbolized by the fact that she's given a pony to ride and she's given riding lessons and she becomes very good at it. And that's something that Viv would never have been able to give her daughter. And it really, um, it's really difficult for her. The idea that her daughter is growing up in a way that, um, 
not only Viv isn't there to witness, but also she would never have been able to provide those things in the circumstances that she and Maggie were living in um, before the war. And they're not even calling her Maggie every time the mother insists on called the foster mother insists on calling her Margaret. I just oh, you can't even call her the name that her mother wants her called. I just I know, I know. She reaction. she is she She's is the worst. A, <laughs> <laughs> She's just the worst. <laughs> She's certainly um, a character. Yes. Well, one the other aspect I thought was so interesting to read about, um, you know. Viv needs to make money to be able to do these visits and everything. And so um, she's able to get a job as a postal worker because they're hiring women with men being off in the war. And I would love to hear about kind of the real history of that, because it just seemed like kind of this interesting girls club sort of forming um, Mm -hmm. uh, amongst these women. Well, you know, the general post office, as it was called then, um, was a institution where women could work, um, and Viv does work before she meets Joshua. Um, she works in a sorting office, uh, but it had something called a marriage ban. So as soon as you were married, you were no longer uh, employable by the general post office as a woman. You had to give up your job. And so because Viv gets married, she is no longer qualified to work there. And it's a real regret of hers. She enjoyed it. Um, it gave her a degree of freedom. Uh, it gave her some money, which also gave her a degree of freedom from her from her parents. And it was something that she um, she had outside of the home that was important to her. So when Maggie is sent away and Viv finds herself in this situation where she's living under her parents' roof, Maggie is really the reason that she's living under her parents' roof because she doesn't have anywhere else to go Um she doesn't have her her husband with her because they're estranged and so she has to provide for her daughter and this is the way that she has has figured out how to do it is live at home with her parents with maggie not there it opens up some opportunities for her and it also motivates her to want to figure out how to be able to afford um to see maggie uh, as i mentioned before uh, to visit maggie and so she applies uh she sort of ring round rings round and calls calls in a favor um with uh with one of her old post office colleagues and uh that colleague is able to uh get her a job interview to actually deliver the post so whereas she was in a sorting office before the war before she got married now she's actually on a bicycle um delivering the post morning and afternoon because uh, there were two delivery services at that time and she meets a whole bunch of other women um, who become a bit of her, as you say, you know, her her girls, uh, her girls club. And she again starts making money and it opens her world up again in a way that it hasn't been open for a long time. So although it's very difficult for her having her daughter um, so far away, she also in some ways... Um, her, her life changes again, and she begins to think beyond, you know, what has been her reality for the last five years in living at home. And she begins to think about what this could mean for her earning money again, having a wage and that, that life that she could potentially provide for her daughter. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, I want to recommend another I think you'll love, Thoughts from a Page with Cindy Burnett. Cindy is a voracious reader and book columnist. 
who gets the inside scoop from authors about their new releases and chats with others in the book industry about the latest and greatest reads. With so many books coming out each week, it can be hard to decide what to read. Cindy finds some of the best ones and shares them with her listeners. A few of her upcoming episodes include Megan Miranda, author of The Only Survivors, Brendan Janowitz on the Audrey Hepburn estate, and Rory Campbell discussing There Will Be Fire. I hope you check out Thoughts from a Page. Listen on your favorite podcast app today. I would imagine there's so many interesting pockets of research you would have to do um, while writing this book. Is there anything um, that stands out to you, something that you found really fascinating as you were uh, researching? Well, there's some sort of more straightforward things. For instance, the bicycle that Viv uh, rides on and, and the other women ride on is called a Federal. And it was a, a great, you know, hulking iron bike, basically indestructible. My mother delivered the post um, many years later. Uh, my mother delivered the post during the Christmas deliveries when she was, um, I believe when she was in university. And it sounded to me, it can't be the same bikes, but it sounded to me like the bikes were very similar. There wasn't much of a change, (laughs) much of a change there. Um, So it was fun. You know, it's always fun researching little bits and pieces like that. Um, Liverpool is a place that is very near and dear to my heart. It's, uh, It's where my mother is from and where I still have family and enjoy going and visiting. And so getting to research a bit about the, um, about the city and what happened during the war. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who have read historical fiction may know about the London Blitz, uh, where London was really heavily bombed during um, 40 and 41. And then subsequently, uh, Liverpool also went through its own blitz, uh, some kind, sometimes called the Merseyside Blitz, sometimes called the Liverpool Blitz. And, um, you know, it was really devastated parts of it, you know, um, casualties, uh, deaths, destruction, it was pretty incredible what happened there. So I think, you know, that was a very sobering, but important uh, part of research. And then I was very fortunate in that um, I had a couple of contacts with um, academics who have done a lot of research around the Jewish community and interactions with uh, non-Jews during the first half of the uh, 20th century. And so I, I, Dr. Tony Kushner and um, Dr. Therese Ward very, very generously spent time speaking to me and giving me context about what the community would have looked like, um, you know, how Liverpool people would have been integrated into neighborhoods. Um, so Jewish families would have been living next to Catholic families. Um, and you would have had more interaction than in other places in Britain where there are more traditionally Jewish neighborhoods um, or more traditionally, um, you know, Catholic areas. And so, you know, that was absolutely invaluable in terms of giving that context and helping understand how would these families have thought about an interfaith marriage? How would people have met each other? You know, um, what would what would acceptance have looked like, um, you know, and what also would anti-Semitism have looked like at the time. And, um, you know, a little, a little bit of the book does go into what Joshua's experience has been like as a child, but also what his experience is like in, in the RAF as well. Um, so, you know, this was a, this was a, a, a big book to research, especially wanting to, um, 
you know, get things, get things as accurate as I could and um, get the right feeling of the book and the right, um, you know, atmosphere in terms of the historical aspects, but also feeling a very um, serious responsibility to both, um, you know, representing uh, a Jewish family and representing a Catholic family um, as accurately as I could. Yeah. And and as you bring up Joshua, I was thinking about that too, of what I am curious, sort of what you were able to find in terms of maybe how somebody would have been treated in the RAF. And it's interesting. He winds up, well, I don't want to give anything away, but he winds up doing something very nice for someone who is pretty awful to him. Um, yes. <laughs> and so it's hard to, I don't want to give things away, but I, I was curious about kind of the attitudes within the military um, in Britain at the time, because here he is serving his country and at the same time being really discriminated against. You know, I I don't want to speak for the entire military and, um, you know, its its track record during World War II in terms of, you know, race and religion um, and sex as well. Um, But in in the case of the RAF, you know, the RAF is particularly interesting because it was the newest force. Um, It was seen as glamorous and dangerous, and it was wildly dangerous. Um, But, you know, the the regulations on uniform and hair were a bit more relaxed for these men. So they were quite dashing. And um, in some ways, it's a very modern force at the time. But in other ways, you know, longstanding um, anti-Semitism and, and pointing out uh, differences um, between people. I mean, that unfortunately, that is a theme that you see across so many different areas. So whereas it, it doesn't necessarily look like um, you know, the conversations around uh, integration or lack thereof in, in the United States forces, um, it is something that absolutely would have come up. And I think what's always interesting, especially as um, somebody who is raised in the United States, but is personally is living in Britain um, and has, you know, British family and British, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a British national as well. Um, but there are aspects of class that I think will always be um will always be a bit of a question mark to me. And so I always think that that's an interesting thing, as I said before, to explore too. Um, You know, the divide between class, how it manifests, those little markers that people... um, that people who aren't raised in this community um, don't necessarily pick up immediately. And I've, I've absolutely been in situations where I, I did not read uh, a class marker that was being dropped in front of me. And, and, you know, my fiance who, who is British uh, would have picked up on it immediately and understood, you know, references that I don't understand. So, you know, I always think that's an interesting thing to explore as well. And, but really sort of all of it, uh, whether it's, you know, religion or, or class or race, um, all of it boils down to relationships and empathy between people. And one of the things I, I felt very strongly about was in a, in a, in a service where you, in the RIF, um, I, I write about a Joshua in a Blenheim bomber. He's a, a navigator and a bombardier. And, you know, these were teams of men who were working very closely with each other. They were reliant upon each other uh, for literally for survival and putting somebody with Joshua who inherently dislikes him because of the fact that he is Jewish. And that really is the only reason that this man dislikes him. And then putting them in this moment of great stress and um, great danger and having them kind of work through that um, 
that was something I was I was interested in exploring because I think the war is fascinating for a lot of reasons, but one of them is it really forces people to, or characters, I should say, uh, but people as well, um, really forces characters to um, come to terms with sort of very raw emotion and conflict. Yeah, you know, it's making me wonder, because that was such a sort of standout scene. Were there any scenes that maybe like surprised you as you were writing or took a turn you didn't expect for the story or, or the character? Well, I appreciate you saying that about that scene because that scene took forever to write because I kept trying to te- <laughs> thank goodness for World War II history nerds because somebody has published online multiple videos of these um, planes flying and also the technical specs and where, you know, the bombing seat would have been and all these things. Anyway, it, so thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so trying to get that as correct as I could while also trying to maintain tension was a, was a fun job. Um, you know, the, the thing, the funny thing about this book is, um, really, really the last, the last third, definitely, but the last two thirds are essentially a rewrite. Um, you know, I started writing this book and I think I knew where I wanted it to go, but I got a bit off track in the process of writing it. And so having to actually sit down and think about how I was going to edit this book and and my my editor and I agreed that it wasn't working. So what was the new approach that I was going to take? And in this case, you know, I had taken this book that is predominantly set in 1940, 1940 or 1939 and 1940 and then has a time jump. And that time jump originally was 20 years to 1961. The book as it's published is a time jump till just after the war, so 1945. So a big, big difference and a big difference in what my characters would have been doing and who they would have been at that point in their lives and all of these things. So, you know, it was certainly a surprise. I didn't expect to, you know, as I was writing the first draft, I didn't expect to have this major change, but I'm really glad I did because... First of all, I think the book is much stronger for it. But I think also sometimes as a writer, when you know that something isn't quite working and you don't know how to put your finger on it and how to fix it, stepping away from it and having an editor look at it and start to talk to you kind of starts, at least for me, unlocking some of the things that just seems so obvious when when you start to have that conversation and kind of think about the bigger picture. So it was a it was a, a surprise with a lot of work attached to it, <laughs> but yeah. a surprise I was very very happy um, worked out. That's so interesting that that wasn't um, the way the book was originally. I I did find it really interesting to get to see sort of how they're putting back the pieces of their lives right after the war and sort of that next scene after life is kind of trying to go back to normal. I think that's also resonating is like, you know, in the past year or two, we've been trying to sort of somewhat come back to a new normal or a state of normal after sort of the height of COVID. So maybe kind of reading about characters putting back the pieces was was interesting. And I did want to ask too, just the whole idea of the complexity of families coming back together after uh, children were evacuated, I thought was really interesting to read about because you you are just thinking about, at least at the beginning, okay, it's just about them you, surviving. You just want the, them to survive this terrible time and survive the war. But there's an aftermath too that they have to navigate as families. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, this is one of the most interesting aspects of the war that I really hadn't wrestled with until I wrote this book. And now I want to write a whole bunch of books about it because I find it so fascinating. But, you know, one of the things that happened because this is a total war and because it involved the civilian population as well as uh, as well as the military um, for the countries that were involved, uh, that were engaged with it, involved with it, um, you know, you don't just have men going off to fight. You have women going off in auxiliary services. You have women doing things on the home front and volunteering, and in some cases, literally holding down the fort at home. And in some cases, you know, being very, very active in the war effort. You have children being evacuated. You have uh, husbands and wives who don't see each other for years and years. There are so much going on and there is so much displacement in some cases, literally with displacement of families because their homes have been bombed or something has happened. But in some cases, displacement of those familial relationships where you have a child coming back. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really stark about this war and fascinating is if you had sent your child away and they were say 10 years old, by the end of the war, they would be depending on when they were born, 15 years old and a 10 year old and a 15 year old are two very different phases of life. You know, we have, you, you would have a teenager who has their own thoughts and opinions and, and might feel certain ways about the fact that they haven't seen their parent for a number of years. Um, you know, children had a lot of different experiences. And that's one of the things that I think um, doing the research for this book really drove home to me is that everybody's experience with the evacuations was individual. There's no one evacuee experience. And I say that because some people were evacuated and stayed away for the entire war and had wonderful experiences and, you know, maintained close relationships with their, their family, their foster families after the war. Some had a terrible time. Some were brought home early. Um, some were brought home and sent away again. There was real psychological toll for parents, for children, um, for everybody involved. And I think that's something that I picked up a book called When the Children Came Home by Juliet Summers, thinking I was picking up a book about Operation Pipe Piper for research. And it turned out to mostly be a book actually about um, interviews and oral history accounts woven in with the history of coming back from the evacuations and what that did to this generation of British children and and their parents. And it's really, I think, one of the most devastating things to realize that this really had a huge, profound impact on many people's lives. And some people never got over it. And some people never forgave their families. Some people did, and they worked their way back. And some people were so grateful to be back home and be with their parents again, um, that, you know, that was that was their experience. Fascinating. Um, I'll have to check out that book as well. And that is reminding me, I wanted to ask too, if there are any books you've read lately that you've really enjoyed that you want to recommend to listeners? Well, there is a fun, funny quirk of publishing where sometimes you get a group of books all published around the same time that are wonderful companions to each other. So I will say that The Lost English Girl is um, pu- has published, uh, but there are two books also about the evacuations but completely different takes on them, completely different experiences and uh, telling different areas of 
of that history. One is The Last Lifeboat by Hazel Gaynor, which I'm reading right now, and that releases um, in the summer. And just a little bit before that is The Secret Book of Flora Lee by Patty Callahan Henry. And I haven't, I'm in the middle of Hazel's book right now. I haven't read Patty's yet, but I've been told by early readers who've read all three of our books that actually they work really nicely as a companion package. Um, so I just uh, started Patty's book and she's going to oh, be coming wonderful. Out, So that'll be perfect. <laughs> well, we've been, we've been joking between the three of us that we need, somebody needs to bring us in to like do a book club panel or something like that, or a library yes. panel. Um, but I also wanted to um, mention, and I, I will admit, I have to pull my Goodreads up for this because um, I always find it very tricky to to sit there and kind of think back through what I've read recently. Um, I I really enjoyed a book uh, called Cover Story by Susan Rigetti. Uh, very different from what I write. It's contemporary and it's more focused on the sort of um, uh heists and swindles and, um, you know, fraudulent, uh, series of fraudulent articles that have been, um, featured recently. So I think, uh, the Netflix show is becoming Anna has definitely some influence on this, but also the Tinder swindler and other things. So I, I really enjoyed that book as well. And, um, again, very different from what I write, but, uh, when you're writing historical fiction all day, sometimes it's nice to have a bit of a break and to do something completely different with your reading. Yes, for sure. Well, I'll definitely link to all those. And um, I just hope that listeners go pick up The Lost English Girl at their local bookstore um, or get their holds in at the library. It was um, just such a fascinating read and the characters felt so real to me. Um, I keep thinking about them weeks later and um, I think others are going to feel the same. And just thank you for taking the time to come on and best of luck as you continue to promote the book and um, kind of bring it out into the world. Thank you so much. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.